the best of them, had a priestly role, a, a prophetic role of calling the people back into obedience to God and his way of doing things. And they would remind the people of the law and what it means to be the people of God. And, and these judges would rule for a time and the people would remain faithful to God throughout the time of the judge's life. And then again, a time would come when they would begin following the gods and practices of their neighbors. The people who were practicing and worshiping pagan religions and worshiping pagan gods. And God would again allow them to be uh, conquered by one of their neighboring nations. And so this pattern of judges and the cycle of judges continues. And I think that it's not unlike the world that we live in today where we live among people who do not believe the things of God. And the question is out there, will we believe God's word or will we follow the ways of the world? And, and how's God going to interact with us if we continue to choose the world and not God's way? And then Judges has a lot to offer. What you see in Judges is that for the most part, each judge continues to be strong throughout the book, but that as you get towards the end of the book, they're not as good as at leading and calling the people to unity, and they're not as good at calling the people back to righteousness. They're not as good at calling the people back to live according to God, but they do continue to deliver the people from the harsh neighbors who surround them. Jephthah is one of those judges who's towards the end of the book. The part of the book where he continues to be mighty to conquer, but not great at leading and not incredible at calling people back to God. In fact, calling them back to God doesn't come up much in Jephthah's story. And I want to get in here and just read the story again, because if you weren't here last week, you need to hear this story and hear how deeply troubling it is. This is not an easy story. This is not one of the stories that we tell children when they are in, in younger grades because it's difficult. It's hard for us to understand who the good guy is in this story. And yet we're told in 1 Samuel and in Hebrews that Jephthah is one of the heroes of faith. And yet we read this story and we think, how could a hero of faith do the things he does and say the things he said? But here's the story. Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. And Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You're not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. Sometime later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. Jephthah said to them, didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? And the elders of Gilead said to him, nevertheless, we're turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites and you will be head over all of us who live in Gilead. And Jephthah answered, Suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? And the elders of Gilead replied, The Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them. And he repeated all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. 
And then Jephthah proceeds to send a long message to the Ammonites who they don't answer. And we're going to pick up again in verse 23 after this, this long correspondence. And he says in verse 23, Now since the Lord, the God of Israel, has driven the Amorites out before his people Israel, what right have you to take it over? Will you not take what your God, Chemosh, this is Jephthah saying this to the, the leader of the Amorites and the Ammonites, will you not take what your God, Chemosh, gives to you? Likewise, whatever the Lord our God has given us, we will possess. Are you any better than Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever quarrel with Israel or fight with them? For 300 years, Israel occupied Heshbon, Aror, the surrounding settlements, and all the towns along the Arnon. Why didn't you retake them during this time? I've not wronged you, but you are doing me wrong by waging war against me. But the Lord... The judge decide the dispute this day between the Israelites and the Ammonites. He functionally sends a letter that seeks to be pursuing peace and ends it with what is essentially a declaration of war. The king of Ammon, however, paid no attention to the message Jephthah sent him. Then the spirit of the Lord came to Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's. I will offer it as a burnt offering. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Aror to the vicinity of Mineth, as far as Abel Kerimim. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter dancing to the sound of timbrels? She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. And when he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried. Oh no, my daughter, you've brought me down and I am devastated. I've made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I will never marry. You may go, he said. And he let her go for two months. She and her friends went to the hills and wept because she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed. And she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite tradition that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. Last week, we talked about how the text says that they had no choice but to carry out the vows that he had made, but that if they had known the law, then in Leviticus, there are several provisions that allow you to get out of a bad vow that you make. There are provisions that allow you to say, if you make a vow that involves a human life, this is the amount that you have to pay to substitute for the human life because God does not desire the sacrifice of humans. But it appears that at this point, in Israel's history, that no one knows the law. 
that God's word has taken a back seat to their living in the land of blessing. It appears that, that no one cries out and says, we need what God has given us to get us out of this mess that Jephthah has put us in. But we also talked about how for Jephthah, this wasn't him necessarily being foolish. That there's a possibility that this vow was open-ended out of a, a moment of great faith. That in this moment, that what Jephthah is doing is saying, God, whatever it is that you desire for me to sacrifice, for me to receive this victory on behalf of Gilead, whatever it is you desire, you choose that and have it come out of my house. What an unbelievable act of faith. Or an unbelievable act of foolishness. The text doesn't resolve this for us. It's clear that the daughter has incredible faith. She says, I will honor my father and I will honor our God and nothing will get in the way of me doing whatever I must do to make good on my father's vow to the Lord. And the story ends and you have this hope as you're reading it, if you're encountering it for the first time, that maybe you'll get this Abraham moment where as the knife is raised that the angel stops him and says, no, here's a ram in place. Go with your child, your only child of promise. And, and in Gilead's, or in Jephthah's case, his only child at all. But that moment of an intervening angel doesn't come. And the story just leaves us going, this is, is awful. And last week we got into the idea of, of, is Jephthah a faithful or a foolish negotiator? And we got into the questions about what happens when the people of God don't know the word of God and the mess that that creates. And that they don't know the exemption laws keeps them from being able to keep this daughter from being offered as a sacrifice. And this story is such a mess, but it doesn't stop there. And last week I told you that this week we would take a deeper look at some of the background and dynamics that are in play in this story, and that's what we're going to be doing today, going behind the scenes of what's going on in this story and to see what maybe it has to offer us for today. There's a few things you need to know as background to this text. Like the exemption laws last week, Leviticus has other things that inform what's happening in Jephthah's mom's life. See, one of the things that we learn in Leviticus is that the land, the promised land of Israel, must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. Throughout the land that you hold as a possession, you must provide for the redemption of the land. All right, this is Leviticus language, right? So you're kind of going, oh, what does that mean? There's a couple of things it means is that... Uh, Several years back, one of Israel's ambassadors stood up at the United Nations and says, Scripture says that Israel's land belongs to the people of Israel. And a rabbi later would say, that's not exactly true. The land doesn't belong to Israel. Israel belongs to the land. The land belongs to God. God is the one who holds the land in possession, and he allows Israel, his people, to use it. That that's how it's intended. And so part of that is that every family that was part of Israel at the time of the conquest is offered an allotment of land that belongs to their family in perpetuity from now until the end. And the idea was that each family would hand down their piece of land to their children and their children's children and their children's children's children. 
And that if ever your family lost possession because you were so poor that you had to sell it to another, you couldn't transfer ownership of it because ownership belongs to God. You could transfer use of it. But God had provisions in the law that said that after a time that someone in that family that originally owned that land should be able to redeem it and bring it back into the family. But if there's no male heir in the family and the family's name dies, then the land passes to another. So transfer of land within Israel becomes this interesting thing that's in the background of this story of Jephthah's mother. And the other thing that you need to know is this. In Leviticus chapter 19, God tells Israel, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. God tells Israel, listen, if you've got land and you're working that land, I want you to be inefficient and you're collecting of your harvest on purpose. Why? Because he knows that there are always going to be the poor and the foreigners who live among them who cannot take possession of the land because it belongs to Israel. And he knows that the poor do not have access because at some point their family lost access to their land. And so God tells Israel, always leave some of your harvest on the margin for those who have no harvest of their own. When you drop something, leave it there for the ones who are coming behind them to gather it so that they can have something to eat and to live off of. And so we have the story immediately after Judges in the book of Ruth, where Ruth and Naomi go back to her homeland, and Ruth is going to the fields where the workers are gleaning, and she's able to follow along behind them and gather enough for her and her mother because they're following the instructions and commands of the Lord who says be inefficient and ineffective in your gathering so that there's extra for those who have none of their own. And it becomes part of the beauty of the story of Ruth and Boaz, this generosity that's demonstrated. In fact, Boaz tells his workers, get a little bit sloppier than usual. Make sure Ruth gets plenty. And he does, and she does. But Jephthah's mom, Jephthah's mom is in a community where they are neglecting their responsibility to provide for her. They're neglecting their responsibility for her to be able to eat even though she is poor so that she has to turn uh, to a means of making income that is not desirable or moral. There's nothing left for her. We need to kind of explore at this point, what is the backstory of Jephthah's mom that brought her to the place where she's doing what she's doing in Gilead? The story begins to take on a different meaning when you understand that she has no family and that she has no husband and that she has no support and the community is not doing its job of providing for her. Somewhere along the line, her family lost access to their land, and now they live without it. And all she has is the goodwill of the community to provide for her. And so listen to the first six verses of Judges 11 again. With this context and this background of what is expected of the community in mind. Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead, and his mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. 
You are not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. Sometime later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. And Jephthah said to them, didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? This family's story is coming full circle. So what do we know about Jephthah's mom? How did she come to be a prostitute? What is her backstory? We're not given that in the text, but from what we understand about Israel and how they are intended to function, there's a lot of things we can assume from her situation. We can assume that she didn't know a trade that she could practice to make money on her own, that it wasn't given to her. And so much of Israel, a trade was taught from a father to his son so that he could provide for his family. Without a family, there was often not a source of income. She did not have a family to fall back on. When Ruth and Naomi reach this point in the story where Naomi says, I can't provide for you another son to be your husband. My family can't provide for you. Go back to your family so that they can provide for you. Jephthah's mom doesn't have any of that available to her at this point for one reason or another. She wasn't married, and the community has failed to provide for her. The men of the community have made one thing clear. We will not provide for you to stay alive unless. Unless. And the time comes that in doing this line of work that is all that is left to her, that she becomes pregnant. And she has a son and she names him Jephthah. And Jephthah, as he is growing older, is outcast in his community. He's rejected by the sons of Gilead's wife, the legitimate sons, who then chase Jephthah out of town, and they say, listen, we have no part of you, and you have no part of us. You can have no part of our inheritance. And we begin to see who Jephthah's mother was, and that she was someone that was trying to make a way to live in the midst of a community that had no interest in providing for her a way to stay alive and to survive. And now her son, as a result of the occupation that the community drove her into, is now driven out of town by the people who say, we don't have any part of you or you of us. So he goes to the land of Tob. And while he's there, he becomes a scoundrel and a leader of other scoundrels. And that's a word that in the Old Testament often really means mercenary. They're kind of rogue mercenaries for hire, and they're a roving army that's going around doing whatever it is that they can do in their scoundrel ways. But we need to take a moment and look at who the father and the sons are. If we can learn some things about the mother, there's some things that we can learn about the father and the sons as well. Because the father's name was Gilead. Well, Gilead is also the name of the region that they're living in. And so there becomes two ways to understand who the father is. And you have to ask the question, thousands of years ago in ancient Israel, how did the mother know who the father was? There's no paternity test. There's no DNA test. 
she's someone with a clientele that is around her, and she's able to say, the father is Gilead. And the sons are identified in two different parts of the story. One is the part where they drive him out. And the other part is the one where the elders of the community come to Jephthah and say, why don't you come back and be our leader? And you can understand the sons of the father to just have happened to become the leaders of the community. Or you can understand the author of Judges to be saying, who was Jephthah's father? The men of Gilead. Who were Jephthah's brothers? The young men who wanted no part of the evidence of their father's immorality who drive him away. And so we're left with these two options of how to read this text. One is that there is a father who is named Gilead who lives in Gilead and who has a wife and sons and those literal sons drive Jephthah away and later they become the elders and they go and they get Jephthah and they bring him back. But the other one is this. The other one is to say that when an entire community fails to provide for Jephthah's mother and reject her, that she is rejected by Gilead. And that when they then push her into prostitution, that, that the father of her son is the community that drove her away. The father is Gilead. And the sons that drive him away because their fathers are married to their mothers drive him away and say, you're not one of us, get out of here. And they drive him away to a land called Tob, which is a word that really means good, a kind of deep goodness. The land of Tob is a word that is often given to the promised land, but that's where Jephthah is driven to. And he surrounds himself with scoundrels. And if we understand it to be uh, that in this way, that Gilead is all of the men who failed to provide for her and all the men who took advantage of her for their own pleasure and all the men who then were somehow involved in one way or another into the birthing of Jephthah and their collective sons who denied the immorality of their fathers and the boy that it produced, and they rejected that child because they wanted no part of their father's immorality and no ownership in their brother. And they send him away. Things have gotten bad in Israel. Things have gotten problematic in Gilead. And what we see is that in private, immorality has become normal. And in public, self-righteousness causes the abuse of a child born to immorality. Can you imagine what it's like to live in a world where in private, immorality is normal? And in public, self-righteousness is used to abuse the child born of immorality. We may not have to imagine that much. And so Jephthah is rejected. And now we read the story again through yet those eyes. And we read about a woman who is abandoned by those who had the power and ability to provide for her. Instead of providing for her, they took advantage of her. When a child was born, instead of embracing him, they rejected him. Extending the, the, the generations of abuse towards those without wealth or land or power or the ability to provide for themselves. And so the son becomes the rejected child who goes off into the wilderness, into this land of Tob, and he becomes a scoundrel, and other scoundrels gather around him, and he becomes what the text describes as a mighty warrior, which probably is there to tell us that he not only gets fighting skills, but really good equipment. 
He's like a roaming knight in the wilderness with a band of other knights who are scoundrels. They're not, we're not talking King Arthur here. They're scoundrels that are going around finding ways to make money in all the ways that a roving band of armed warriors can make money in the wilderness. And then Gilead becomes conquered, and Gilead needs a warrior, and they only have one, and they rejected him. So Gilead sends to Jephthah and says, come back and be our leader. And he goes back and he becomes their leader. And he's leading them into the battle to show them that he will deliver them in spite of the fact that he has been rejected by them and his mother was rejected by them. He will become their leader. He will become the one who now is able to inherit all that his family never had any opportunity to inherit. Because God has given him the ability to be the deliverer and because of his rejection. But in that moment, as he charges into battle, he makes a vow. And what's happening just off scene that we don't see prior to this point in the story is that Jephthah at some point has had a daughter, a child of his own, and it is his only child. And we don't know if he's married, and we don't know the story of his, his wife or the mother of this daughter. But this daughter has grown, and she lives at his home, and he makes this vow that whatever comes out of his door, when he gets home, he will offer as a sacrifice to God. And when he wins the battle, the battle is given to him by God, and he gets home, what happens but that his daughter comes dancing and celebrating his victory out the front door. And Jephthah blames her in what is a bizarre statement that, that I can't even begin to make sense of, but he blames her, and he says, why would you do this to me where she should be crying out to him? Why would you do this to me? But she doesn't do that. In a story of complicated faith and complicated heroes and villains and victims, she has incredible faith. And she says to her father, listen, if you made a vow to God, I will honor your vow and I will honor your commitment to our God. And, and whatever it is that you said, let me grieve what has to be done and then I will be faithful to you and faithful to God in whatever is needed. Incredible faith from an unlikely source. But there's also this tragedy. There's this tragedy where Jephthah finally has the opportunity to pass down his legacy to his only child. And in the moment that he gains that victory, he receives that greatest loss. How do we make sense of a story like this? What's the moral of the story? Here's the best I can come up with. When God's people take for granted God's law and God's teachings and they forget what God has told them about how to live, bad things start to happen even in the people of God. And the second thing is this, is that when the powerful people among God's people, when the powerful people, and today when I say that what I mean is when powerful and influential people in the church fail to take care of those who are weak and those who are poor and who cannot take care of themselves, when we fail to step up and take care of the least of those among us, we come to find ourselves in a world like Jephthah, where we turn to scoundrels to be our heroes, and even our heroes start to look like villains. Even as they bring us the deliverance that God promises, we look around and think, boy, this sure doesn't look like how we thought it should look when we got here. 
Even when God steps up and is faithful, we have become so unfaithful to God's word and so unfaithful to taking care of the least of those who live among us that it leaves us in a very, very broken world. And so the call of judges is, I think, threefold. One is that we must remain committed to being people of God's word who know it and put it into practice. And if we don't, we're going to end up sacrificing our children. We need to be people who are committed to taking care of the weak and who are outsiders and the marginalized and bringing them in for the sake of the community and the world so that we don't have rejected children that, that are a tribute to the fact that we have immorality and privacy and in public we have self-righteousness that rejects the product of the private immorality that we need genuine faithfulness and obedience to God reflected in our treatment of the poor. And the third one is this, is that judges were never the plan. Judges were never the end goal. They are always anticipating the coming of Israel's good kings. And the best of those kings is undoubtedly David. David, the man after God's own heart, who establishes a kingdom and begins the building of the temple where God would dwell among his people. And David anticipates for us the coming of his heir to his throne, the one who would sit on his throne for all of eternity, King Jesus. You see, King Jesus is going to sit on that throne and bring us to an invitation to really invest in God's word, to fully become people who look after the least of these, who become people that are not just warrior deliverers, but bring us into righteousness, bring us into God's presence, that bring us into being the people of God, transforming the world we look like so it doesn't start to look like judges. It starts to look like heaven, heaven on earth. That's the invitation that Jephthah's story in Judges 11 has for the people who are willing to be God's people in our world today. If you're here this morning and you're hearing this story and you realize that you've never made a commitment to God's word, that you've never made a commitment to be faithful as one of his children, if you've never called on the name of King Jesus to be your deliverer out of the mess that we live in, God's calling you today. God's calling you every day to make that decision to be one of his children and one of his followers. If you need to make that decision this morning, please come forward as we stand and sing.
In addition to the prayer requests listed on your bulletin sheet, which you can pick up at any of the doors every Sunday, we have these. Uh, Janet Griffith asks for us to please pray for Christians in Afghanistan and Iraq and others in danger. Pray for the vets and families that are hurting hurting ones current because of our over current decisions. Pray for our country and our example in the world. We certainly want to keep those in mind because there are Christians elsewhere that are not enjoying the comforts and the peace that we currently are here. Mildred Lopez asks that we pray for all the children who are now